John chapter 13, then Matthew 26, then back to John chapter 13, and then Matthew 27. I'm reading the account of Judas and his betrayal and his interactions with Jesus before um, that Jesus' death, and so I'm trying to capture what the various gospels have to say about this. And so we already read 32 verses from, um, from John 15, um, or no, Luke 15, so you're getting uh, quite a bit of the gospels this morning. Hear God's word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Aaron, I'm getting a little bit of um, a high-pitched feedback so if any, we have any other people who have like dog-like hearing in here, I think they're probably being driven nuts. There we go. Thanks, bud. Matthew 26 then, verse 20 is where we're going to jump over to. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Back to John 13. Picking up in verse 21. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. When he said, someone was going to betray me. And one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered him, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Finally, jumping over to Matthew 27, and here's where the story ends for Judas. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of the silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. This too, even this, is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, Philip Yancey tells the story of ministering to a support group of terminally ill patients. Some of them have been actually ill for for many years. And one of these patients Yancey described as an elderly, handsome, gray-haired woman with a broad, bony face of an Eastern European immigrant. She spoke in simple sentences with a thick accent, and she was utterly lonely, and she was terminally ill. She was asked if she had any family nearby, and she said she had one son, but he was in the military, and he was struggling to find a way to get home to be with her during her final days. Then Yancey asked if she had a husband, 
At this she swallowed hard. And then she said, He came to see me just once. I was in the hospital. He brought me my bathrobe. It was then that the doctor pulled my husband aside into the hallway and told him that I had leukemia. And then her voice cracked. She had to use a Kleenex to wipe tears away. And she said, he went home that night, he packed up, and I've never seen him again. Nancy, after a few moments of silence, asked the woman, how long had she been married? And she said, we were married for 37 years. And he simply walked away. Betrayal is always painful. But it is all the more so because betrayal almost always comes with it an intimacy to the cut. An intimacy to the cut. Can you imagine that pain that that woman felt? But now I want you to flip it. Because that is not who you are in the story. You're the husband. You're the husband. That is who Judas is in the story. Jesus is engaging here in John 13 and Matthew 26 and Matthew 27. This is about a betrayer. A betrayer in the midst. And yet, how does John 13 begin? And he loved them to the very end. Imagine if you were that man and you showed up to your wife's funeral. And you realized what you had done. What would it take? What would you encounter? And imagine being in Judas and the disciples. Judas in this scene is the one who already knows that he is in, in the process of betraying Jesus. And in the face of that betrayal, it says Jesus loved him to the very end. The betrayer, what we're looking at in this series is various encounters of Jesus. We've looked at little children and paralyzed folks and those who need forgiveness. This week, it's the betrayer. A betrayer encounters Jesus, and Jesus is the one whose love endures to the very end. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, that's what it says, right? Love is patient, love is kind, love bears all things, love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, even betrayal. So let's look at Jesus' love for the betrayer. What did Jesus do that showed that he loves Jesus, even, or Judas, even in his betrayal. First, Jesus loves Judas or loves the betrayer first by serving him, by serving him. The first five verses of John chapter 13 are astounding. It says during the supper when the devil had already given, given, given Judas the mind to betray Jesus, Jesus knowing that he had God had given him all things, he was going back to the father. In verse three, it says that he rose from the table, verse four, And he laid aside his hour garments, and he taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet with a towel wrapped around him. This is in the Gospels looked at as the greatest sign of Jesus' call to come and serve, not to be served. That he laid aside his garments... That in that day, if you know the picture of the Last Supper, which is apparently da Vinci is seeking to give a betrayal of the moment, this time when Jesus is being betrayed, and they're having this conversation, this very scene, and it has them at a dinner table, but that is wrong. They would most likely have been sitting on the floor with their legs splayed out behind them, kind of sitting on their side. They would be eating with their right hand, kind of all kind of leaning near each other, kind of sprawled out like you would eat chips while you watch a basketball game on the floor of your living room. 
And he's sitting there, and they're, they're having this discussion. And yet, their feet are out away from the table because in a, in a culture in which there is no indoor plumbing and in which you primarily wear open-toed shoes, your feet are, in a word, disgusting. And there is there, no one, no only the lowest servant would ever wash feet. In fact, no Hebrew was required to wash. Even a, a servant or a slave was required to wash the feet of another Hebrew. And yet Jesus gets up from the table, he takes off his outer garments, and he washes his disciples' feet. The very ones that will betray him, abandon him, but this is what Jesus does. Is this, your, is this what you do? Is this your instinct when you have been betrayed in your life? No, 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 no. We're probably far more like Julius Caesar. If you've ever seen the play uh, Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, you know that this is one of the more famous lines, and it depicts the conspiracy against and then the assassination of the dictator Julius Caesar. And the most famous part of the play is the assassination is where Julius Caesar is stabbed by his very friends in the Roman Senate. And the very last one, at least as it depicts in Shakespeare play, is Brutus. And what is Caesar's famous line? When he looks up, et tu, Brute, which means even you, Brutus, or actually it means, and you too, Brutus. Now, the meaning of these words by those who've looked at Shakespeare's play for many years was that these are displayed Caesar's shock and dismay because of his friend's betrayal. But actually, there's actually some more modern theories that go like this, that Caesar was actually looking up at Brutus and saying, may you meet the same death in the same way that I have. And I believe, I don't know if it's theory or just myth, that Brutus dies by his own hand as well. In other words, what he is saying is this, I'm cursing you and I will get you back for this. Because that is our natural instinct when we know someone is going to betray us. Or we know somebody has betrayed us. We say, I will kill you. I will cut you right back. But that is not Jesus' response. Jesus' response is to walk into a room of men who he spent and dedicated his life to for the last three years, knowing that they will abandon him, and then knowing that Jesus has already had laid the plans to betray him, and yet he will stoop down and wash his feet. And not only that, but Jesus is going to break bread with these men. And actually, as, as commentators look at this, they, they have come to assess that Judas is most likely on Jesus' left-hand left side, which is the place of honor. But Jesus, over and over again during this evening, knowing what he knows about Judas, still is willing to put him in a place of honor, to serve him, to invite him to the place of friendship. This is how Jesus loves the betrayer. He encounters him. The betrayer encounters one who serves them in the face of their betrayal. There was a husband, and he had discovered his wife's infidelity. And so he confronted her and she confessed and it all came pouring out. The lies, the adultery, the betrayal and he was heartbroken and distraught and he was angry and he was distressed. And their conversation had come to an end. They were at an impasse. There was the deadly silence in the room. There was nothing more to be said. Her betrayal was all out on the table. They could see it. She knew it and he knew it. And he said, I'm going to go out for a while. And she said, okay. And he left. And she had no confidence that he would come back, and time slipped by, minutes, and then hours. But then the sound of the car being pulled back into the driveway met her, 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 her ears, 
And she, she, he walked in, and he we had a bag in his hand and the tears in his eyes. And he said, I have no illusions of how difficult the next couple of months will be. I am heartbroken. But I want you to know that I am not going anywhere. And out of that bag, he pulled a white dress, simple and satiny. And he said, I'm, I choose to see you as covered in the righteousness of Christ. And while I am sure I will be faulty in my forgiveness, I pledge to serve you such that you believe that I see you as Christ sees you. This is how Christ treats even those who are willing to betray him. Jesus serves. If you're a betrayer today, if you know you've denied him and abandoned him, if you betrayed Christ in your profession of faith or lack thereof, know that he is still willing to serve and to love you. Second, Jesus serves, but Jesus will not simply allow Judas to carry on towards destruction without also warning him. Jesus loves the betrayer by warning him. In Matthew 26, he reread that Jesus said, one of you betrayed me, and if you carry this out, if you continue your plans of what you're thinking about doing, it would be better for you that you had not been born. Jesus is warning Judas, even while he's not calling Judas out by name. He is saying to Judas, he didn't look at Judas and say, you are the man, Judas. No, Jesus simply says, one of you betray me, but he doesn't point out who that man is. But he's very definitely saying to Judas, I see you. I see you. And when he says, one of you betray me, it's a way of saying to Jesus, I know what you're about to do. You see, Jesus provides Judas multiple opportunities to abandon his plan by essentially communicating to Judas, I know what's going on. Don't do this. In, in the John 13 case, in verse 10, verse 18, and verse 21, three times, Jesus alludes that one of them will betray him. Display, he's very well aware of what's going on. See, this is like, if you're, maybe you've done this as a parent, in which you know one of your children has taken the cookie from the cookie jar, so to speak, or for per, perhaps, like we have a, a jar of like loose cash and change, and you know one of your kids took it. And you kind of go into the room and you go, all right, who took the cash from the cash jar? And you know which one it is. And you say to them, listen, I know it's one of you. I'm not going to discipline you. I just want you to confess. You're saying, I see you. I know what's going on. Someone needs to come forward and repent of what they're doing. This is what Jesus is providing for Judas here. In fact, from Matthew 26, Jesus goes a step further, and eventually he tells Judas directly that he knows that he is going to betray him quietly. So Jesus says, I see you, Judas. I know what you're doing. And it's a warning saying, don't do this. Don't do this. See, Jesus is willing to not make the false equivalency that people in our day make between love and giving warnings of coming judgment. That he does not look at love as meaning merely he serves and he never confronts. But Jesus is willing to have the hard, awkward conversation of saying, don't do this. Don't do this. To call sin, sin, and evil, evil. But I want to drive this home even further and connect this to you and everyone else in this room in the hopes of connecting you more to the story of Judas. Do you see the ambiguity of what Jesus is saying here and maybe why he's being so ambiguous? He doesn't come out and say, one of you is going to betray me and it's Judas. No, he leaves it ambiguous. What's he trying to accomplish with the ambiguity? In John 13, the disciples looked at one another and they said they were uncertain of whom he spoke. 
Now, this tells us something about betrayal, even amongst God's people. You cannot readily see who the betrayer is. Notice when, G- when Jesus said something, but somebody would betray him, they all look around. And they didn't know who they didn't suspect. They didn't suspect Judas. We sometimes get this picture of Judas as if he is this sinister presence with piercing eyes, and that he has a scar running down one side of his face, that he's wearing all black clothing, and that he kind of hisses when he talks. But that is not who Judas is. Judas is actually seen as a moral and righteous man by the other disciples, and how do we know this? He is respected because he is voted to be the one who's going to be the treasurer of the money bags. That he's the one that they trust the most with to be the accountant of their group. The betrayer can look religious and righteous. He's always looking out for the poor, it seems like. This is who Judas appears to be. More than simply not knowing it is Judas who is the betrayer, the disciples actually sense that there's a warning here for them. Because how do they respond? They don't simply go, well, who might it be? But then what's the next question they ask? In verse 22 of Matthew 26, they say, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to Jesus one after another, is it I, Lord? Greek commentators say that the question is phrased, and the way that what they're saying here was, is it, is it I? It implies a decided lack of confidence. <laughs> In other words, you should read it as, it's not I, is it? Really? Okay? Because Jesus wants every one of his disciples to look into their very hearts and ask this question. Could I betray you? Am I capable of such betrayal? One commentator said this, that the figure of Judas is one of the deepest and darkest, not only in figures we have, not only in the Gospels, but in all of human literature. People have written whole books trying to get to the bottom of what precisely he did and why. And I suspect that if we, if we were to transport all that we know about psychology back to the first century and get an interview with Judas on the day of the Last Supper, and even if he cooperated and answered all of our questions, it still wouldn't get to the bottom of it. It wouldn't get to a single identifiable motive that would make us say, ah, of course, that's why he did it. Who knows? We certainly don't know why. And frankly, I'm happy not to peer down that murky well too long, for I might see reflections I find quite disturbing. Roman, Romano Gardini, a Roman Catholic commentator, wrote a, a brilliant book called The Lord, said it this way. He said, Judas unmasked a native, native, negative capability within each one of us, and we should beg God to not let the treachery into which we are prone to fall to become fixed within us. Or as The scriptures put it, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. It's important to say, what am I capable of doing if I were under certain threats and under certain temptations and under certain pressures and certain opportunities? Could I produce great evil under certain circumstances which I haven't experienced yet? And the Bible says, yes, that's true. Yes. It's a warning. It's a warning to Judas and to all other potential betrayers out there. Jesus loves us enough, not with a milquetoast love, but a tough love love. He loves Judas enough to remind us and to remind Judas of what we're capable of. But I would say, look look at the surgical nature in which Jesus does this, though. Look at the way in which Jesus calls out Judas There's actually something surgical and even gentle gentle in the nature in which he doesn't. 
He doesn't say, there's the scum, the traitor, the liar, it's Judas. No, he doesn't say that. In fact, he, he, he only seems to unmask him even to John in, in a kind of quiet, whispering conversation. He lets John know, to whom I give this piece of bread, that's the one. But he doesn't humiliate Judas. He doesn't trample on him. D.A. Carson, who's written probably uh, the most uh, well-lauded uh, commentary in the book of John, said this, that this act of quiet warning is Jesus' courtesy and love towards Judas by quietly beckoning him to repent. Why is he doing it this way? Because he is not trying to crush Judas. He's trying to bring Judas to a place of repentance. He doesn't want to shatter Judas. He wants to melt Judas. He doesn't want to condemn Judas. He wants to convict Judas. If he hadn't said, I see you, there'd be no chance for repentance. If he hadn't called him out on his sin, but at the same time, if he had simply trampled on him and crushed him and said, that's it, you're damned to hell from this moment on, there would have been no chance for repentance either. So we see his service in the face of betrayal. We see his warning, and we see his gentleness, but we see in this final act of warning a pleading invitation to return. That's this last act of love. Jesus loves the betrayer by inviting him back. It says this in verse 20, 25 and 26, so that, that disciple leaning, this is John, who wrote, writes the book, that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So yes, there is warning here, but there's, one, there's more than simply warning. There's also kindness and gentleness and a sympathy from our Lord inviting Judas back in. You see, where's the invitation, you say? Well, it's actually in the act, in the very act of identifying Judas as the betrayer is also an act of invitation to Judas himself. Jesus takes bread and he dips it and he gives it to Judas. Now you need some context here to understand what's going on. They are in the midst of celebrating what appears to be uh, are getting ready to celebrate the Passover supper. And there were these traditions and metaphors that had been attached to the liturgy of the, of the Passover supper through the years. And perhaps the point at which Jesus dipped the bread into a bowl was a moment in the feast called the Korek. And you dip bread into a sauce made of bitter herbs that symbolize bitterness, the bitterness of sin and slavery, and, and it offers to us deliverance in the, from that slavery. And here's the kicker. In the Jewish tradition, the host was to offer the bread dipped into the bitter herbs to someone in the room that he knew well and loved deeply. It was an honor to receive it. The host was saying, you are special to me. And so Jesus takes that bread and he dips it. And he hands that piece of bread, a sign of affection. I'm still willing to receive you, Judas. Judas, I love you. I hold affection for you. Return to me. Return home. Go back to the parents and knowing what their kid is doing. Parents of a teen. Teens think they're so smart, right? That they say that they're going out to do something utterly innocuous with their friends. And you as a parent know they're going, to do out, going out to do something very devious, perhaps very destructive. And you may not know exactly what they're doing or where they're going, but you have a sense in which as they walk out of the house, you want them to know that they can come home. And so you grab hold of them and you say, I love you and I am for you. Remember that as you go out. What are they doing? They're saying, don't go through this. Return in your heart to us. 
Don't go running after these things that are destructive to your life. Return home. This is the place where you have love and affection and care. You're pleading for them. And those of you who like weekly communion, this would be a time in which you can throw eggs at me. See, each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there's one of them. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to repent and return. Right? That's what the Lord's Supper is. What do we do to prepare for the Lord's Supper? You repent and you receive. You repent and you receive. And so Jesus holds it out to Judas, his disciple and his friend. He says, will you take it? Will you take it? Will you repent? And the great tragedy here is that Judas takes the morsel and he takes it without repentance. You see, the call to repent is refused by Judas. We pick up back in 27, verse 27, John 13. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that Judas had, been, had the money bag. And Jesus was telling him, but we, what we need to for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And you love how John adds this. And it was night. Judas goes out into the darkness of judgment. This is viewed here as irreparable hardness of hearts. This act of love becomes, with terrible immediacy, this decisive moment of Judas's judgment, handing Judas over to the darkness from which there will be no return. Now, understand this. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I would be what people call a Calvinist. I believe in the providence of God, and things are fixed by God and used by God. Clearly, Judas' betrayal was ordained by the providence of God for Jesus to be betrayed and handed over to be crucified. But per, per, the correct view by any good Calvinist and Reformed person is to hold that and also hold this. But I also believe that at any point, if Judas would have confessed and repented, Jesus would have received him. I don't know how things would have worked out in the province of God. I believe that Jesus is authentically pleading with his friend whom he loved, repent, don't go through with this. And yet the passage ends with him going through with it and going into the night. And so Judas won't repent, He won't turn back, and here's the tragedy. Here's the real tragedy. The real tragedy, don't miss this, the real tragedy is not that Judas betrayed Jesus. We know this is not the real tragedy because Judas is not the only one who will betray Jesus. At the same passage, Jesus tells all the other disciples, hey, you're you're going to abandon me. You're going to deny me. You're going to flee from me. In the same meal, Jesus says, you guys are all going to leave me. In a sense, you're all going to betray me. And the tragedy, therefore, was not his betrayal, so to speak. It certainly wasn't the lack of remorse, because what do we see in Matthew 27? He is so grieved by his sin that he goes and gives all the money back. He is guilty, and he hates himself, and he doesn't know where to take the pain. He goes to the place of worship, and there is no help at the place of worship at the temple. He is trapped and ashamed and hopeless at the end of his rope. And so he gives way to the only thing that seems open to him, which is the end of a rope. His tragedy was not that he betrayed Jesus. The real tragedy is that Judas has hardened his heart to the beckoning love of Jesus. That's the real tragedy. By refusing to let God love you on God's terms, the God who is reconciling you to himself through Jesus Christ, you are not rejecting a mere idea. You're turning your back on rejecting a person, a person who loves you 
and serves you and warns you and invites you back to him. You see, the real tragedy is not that Jesus hardened his heart to love. The real tragedy is that Judas hardens his heart to the love of Jesus for him. You see, the other disciples, they don't harden their heart to that. And so they're all able to return. And so you know how I think about Judas? I pity Judas. I pity him because I see myself in him. And not simply my ability to betray Jesus, I see myself in his unwillingness to receive God's love. Judas was, Judas was against Jesus, but Jesus was not against Judas. Not to the very end. And if Jesus, was not against, if Jesus was not against Judas to the very end, then he is also not against you. And you can entrust your life to him. Yes, at the very moment and the very place of your worst betrayal. God is for you. And the reason you can know this is because before Judas handed Jesus over, God the Father planned to hand Jesus over. Jesus had already planned to do it. It was within his plan. This is why it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He, God the Father, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God handed over his own son to take the place of traitors so that traitors might know that we might stand before God for all eternity. You ask, what sort of father would hand over his son? Well, the Bible also tells us that Jesus willfully also handed himself over. Galatians 2, chapter, 2, chapter verse 20 says this, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, here's the question. Will you heed the warning? Will you be wooed by the service of Jesus and you respond as an invitation to return and repent to him? If you're not a Christian, what that means is this, is that you accept what Judas could not. That do you believe today that Jesus has died for you And so you lay your life with all of your failings at his feet. And if you are a Christian, then what that means for you is you never get beyond this. You never get beyond the daily encounters with a Jesus who invites even betrayers to his presence. A daily returning, a return to the table of the bread and the wine to eat from the very hand of Jesus. Would you come? Would you come encounter the God who in the face of your betrayal yesterday, today, and tomorrow would extend to you his love, his service, his warning, and his invitation? He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are a people who so quickly forget We forget the Father's love and we reject the Father's love. And so, Lord, would you make us soft? I think of that very passage that Joel read today. That the prodigal remembered the Father's love in his house. And he came home. And, Lord, I love the way Luke chapter 15 ends with a a blank. That the Father goes out to the older brother and says to him, Won't you come in? Won't you come in? And the older brother is remaining distant in the betrayal of his own righteousness and his anger. And so, Lord, I pray that the righteous and the unrighteous in this room, that they would heed your invitation to come once again to lay their sinfulness, 
their selfishness at your feet, and to receive your welcome home. Would you do that? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.